Today, we are joined by a panel of leading medical professionals who recently formed the group Scientists to Stop COVID-19. Doctors David Liu, Michael Rosbash, Stuart Schreiber, Ramnick Xavier, and Edward Skolnick come from different disciplines and research areas, but have united behind this effort to help policymakers develop a comprehensive and science-based approach to stop this virus. Today, they will discuss promising treatments for COVID-19, including remdesivir and various monoclonal antibodies, as well as the timeline for a possible vaccine. Let's listen in. Very much, Nancy and Liz. I'm delighted. It's Joe Colonetta from Dallas. I'm delighted to be able to present this group of scientists at this point in time during everything that we all have been trying to understand and make meaning out of. Um, I got to know this group of scientists through my relationship with Dr. Cahill, who, as you may have read, is uh, the unofficial ringleader who organized this group several weeks ago. And I think what we'll do is um, we'll have a little bit of a panel type discussion today. We'll uh, start with having Dr. Cahill give a little bit of background about the scientists who are on this call. So Tom, if you want to take the next step. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce the other scientists. I'll be uh, discussing kind of the proposal we put together. I'll start with Dr. David Liu, who's a professor of chemistry and chemical biology at Harvard University, vice chair of the faculty of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and a Howard Hughes medical institute investigator. He's the founder of Beam Therapeutics Editas, Prime Medicine Pairwise, Exotherapeutics. He's also a pioneer in chemical biology, protein engineering, gene editing, has developed technologies such as base and prime editing. Uh, next is Dr. Michael Rosbosch. He's the 2017 Nobel Laureate in Physiology or Medicine, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a professor of biology at Brandeis University, and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. Dr. Rosbosch is a pioneer of chronobiology, study of how living systems sense and respond to time. Next is Dr. Stuart Schreiber, he's a professor of chemistry. Uh, in chemical biology at Harvard University and co-founder of the Broad Institute. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a founder of Vertex Pharmaceuticals, Ariad, Infinity, Forma, H3, Biomedicine, and Genana Therapeutics. Shri uh, Dr. Schreiber co-pioneered the field of chemical biology. Next is Dr. Robnick Xavier, the professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, former chief of gastroenterology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Director of Computational in, in, and Integrative Biology at MGH and a core institute member of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. He has discovered molecular mechanisms underlying innate and adaptive immunity, as well as causes of Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and autoimmunity. And last but not least is Dr. Edward Skolnick. He's the former head of research and development at Merck and a core investigator at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. While at Merck, Dr. Skolnick oversaw the development of 28 FDA-approved drugs and vaccines, including statins, HIV protease inhibitors, and Gardasil. He also made seminal discoveries on the nature of genes that cause cancer in humans before beginning his 22-year career, career at Merck. Um, thank, thank, thank you, Dr. Cahill. Um, Liz, is Steve on? Okay, uh, also on the line with us today is... Luca, who has been a tremendous supporter of this group of scientists, and Steve, I believe you'd like to make a few comments. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a very privilege to work with this incredible group. Um, they 
the history of this, they came together uh, from knowing each other and, and uh, being at conferences and, and sat down and stepped back and, and looked at the landscape and said, uh, you know, how can we help? How can we help identify therapeutics and, and vaccines that can actually get through? And then how can we help make that be fast track? So they, they've acted as, as, as kind of a, a, an instant, uh, a quick peer review to separate out the wheat from the chat and done a fantastic job. So I've been, uh, been thrilled to, to uh, work with the group and be helpful with the group to push this forward and integrate their work into what we're doing in Massachusetts here on the, the back to work programs. So thank you very much. Thanks, thanks Steve, that's great. Um, at this point, I'd like to ask Dr. Skolnick and Dr. Liu to give an overview of the group's recommendations that have been presented and some of which are being accepted by government officials. Okay, thank you very much, uh, all of you, for uh, making this possible. This is uh, Dr. Skolnick. Uh, I'm going to give, I, I realize that uh, virtually all of you are not scientists. And so I'm going to give a very brief overview of the bullets that we're going to cover in order to leave as much time as possible for us to actually cover those and allow you to ask questions that you might not understand. And I think what we'll cover today is, uh, first of all, we'll cover uh, remdesivir, which has been in the news earlier today. So this is very timely. Uh, we will cover something called monoclonal antibodies. Uh, they, are, uh, some, a, they are a modality, a treatment modality that has been around in uh, medicine for 20 or 30 years. Uh, drugs like Humira that you might have heard, heard of that treat rheumatoid arthritis or anti-HER2, which treat breast cancer are well-known examples of monoclonal antibodies. And there are companies involved now in making monoclonal antibodies, human monoclonal antibodies, that will neutralize the coronavirus when the antibodies are injected into humans. There are three companies leading this, and I'll go into that in a minute. And then there are the vaccine efforts, which uh, we will cover. And I decided that I would make an audacious proposal for how, if everything went perfectly, and I emphasize that, if the plan went perfectly and everything were safe during the execution of the plan, we could have a vaccine available for the American public in the late part of this year. So don't faint, and, and this is not something that's impractical. I'll explain it in a few minutes. And then David Liu, my terrific colleague from the road, will cover the uh, testing procedures that we think are really important, both now before, uh, better treatments and a vaccine are available. And to some degree, even after a vaccine is available as kind of a belts and suspenders approach to make sure that we don't have a recrudescence of this uh, terrible pandemic. So uh, I will stop there and uh, ask if you want me to go on with the first bullet remdesivir or what you would like to happen. Yes, please proceed. Okay, great. All right, so as you know, in our report, we, we highlighted remdesivir 
And, and we did that for very, very solid scientific reasons. Uh, this drug, which is not yet approved in the US, uh, was designed against a different virus, not the coronavirus. And it was used initially in a trial against a virus, which is a, a family member of this coronavirus called Ebola virus, which I'm sure you've all heard of. And it um, did some good in the trial in Africa. It did work. It didn't work quite as well as the monoclonal antibodies used in that trial, so it was not used to treat Ebola. But it definitely inhibits, it, it, it was known that it definitely inhibited the replication, the growth of this virus or very, very closely related coronaviruses derived from bats. That has been established unambiguously in cultured cells uh, outside the body. And recently, in very recent times, it was shown unambiguously to block the virus from replicating and killing uh, monkeys who were uh, artificially infected with the coronavirus. So we know it can work against the virus. That's really important. The uh, trials that have been going on, which you've heard about, and there was one uh, breaking news trial uh, revealed today, have now established that remdesivir can work in people against uh, coronavirus to provide some medical benefit. We, as a group, have obviously not seen the data from that trial, but we trust Dr. Fauci, uh, and uh, he presumably has seen the data from that trial. Now, that drug needs to be given currently intravenously. So it is not appropriate for uh, use by an individual patient in their home after a phone call to the doctor and a test for being positive of coronavirus. You have to go to the hospital or some such setting to get it. And if you're sick, obviously you're going to stay in the hospital while you're treated for five or 10 days with intravenous remdesivir. Um, we believe that, uh, we believe the results that were announced today, uh, we would add a, two or three more points to this. So remdesivir is a pretty safe drug. We think that slightly higher doses could be used to treat the disease and be even more effective without endangering uh, patient safety. Um, and we have urged Gilead to develop a different form of the drug, a different formulation of the drug, which can be administered not intravenously, but directly to the lungs <clears throat> by something called inhalation therapy. Uh, Gilead is uh, actively working on this. They had also considered this possibility before we spoke to them, but have ramped up their efforts since we spoke to them. And the reason that this is, that this is important, and there'll be one additional thing I think that we, we 
might ask you to help with is that um, the major place where the virus reproduces itself and the highest amounts of virus are in the lungs and respiratory tract of patients. And that accounts for why that's the major organ that um, the pathology occurs in, which I'm sure you've read about. Um, so you can deliver a much higher amount safely of remdesivir to the lungs directly by inhalation methods. There is a liquid inhalation method called um, that 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 uh, Gilead is um, currently developing, and that should be more effective. It's a little cumbersome, but it's certainly better than the intravenous method. There is another inhalation methodology that we think can be used to deliver high amounts of the drug to the respiratory tract in the lungs. And Gilead is not expert at this form of inhalation therapy. And to be frank, they have had some difficulty working out an appropriate uh, collaboration with one of the two or three large companies in this country that are already expert at this second kind of inhalation therapy. And uh, we don't understand fully the barriers that have gotten in the way of that, but, and we have urged them to, at risk, uh, activate those discussions more because we anticipated the result that was announced today. And we thought we were so certain that that would happen, that it was worth an at-risk uh, scaling up of this second inhalation technology. Uh, we don't understand those barriers, but we think the federal government should help facilitate the collaborations between Gilead and either AstraZeneca, GSK, or Pfizer, each of which has excellent expertise at this other inhalation technology, because that will allow not only for the higher amounts of drug to be delivered to the respiratory tract, but in theory uh, and in practice, patients could self-deliver this because it's an enclosed device that carries the drug. And this kind of device is already used in self and, and people self-administer it. People with asthma, people with chronic lung disease deliver therapeutic drugs to their lungs using this kind of device. So we're excited that remdesivir has now been shown to have some effect. We think that that is the minimum effect that it's capable of having. And uh, I, I think we will see more progress and you could help on one aspect of this. So I will pause there before going on to the monoclonal antibodies and vaccines to answer any questions. Uh, Dr. Skolnick, we're going to take Q&A after you and Dr. Liu made your overview. So why don't you go ahead and cover okay. vaccine. Okay. All right, great. So I'm going to talk about two immune ways of dealing, anti-immune ways of dealing with this virus. 
And the first is called monoclonal antibodies. They're human antibodies. They can produce, they can be produced outside this, the body in huge amounts. And there are, we believe, three companies in the United States rushing to get monoclonal antibody that will neutralize this virus when injected into a human that will block its replication. One of them has been in the news, Regeneron. Another is a small company in California called VIR. And the third, I've been told in recent days by a colleague who follows this closely is Eli Lilly. Now, in general, this uh, technology is extremely safe. And each of these companies is um, excellent at what they're trying to do. We believe that the first company that will be in the clinic with their uh, monoclonal antibodies against this virus will be Regeneron. We obviously don't know the details of where each of the companies stands, but we have had conversations with some of them. And we believe that um, by early June, if there are no technical hitches, Regeneron will be in the clinic testing initially the safety of their monoclonal antibodies against coronavirus. Again, outside the body, in cultured cells, the antibody blocks completely the replication of coronavirus. So this, these monoclonals will go into humans, and the first thing that will be done, obviously, is a quick test of safety in normal volunteers, there is no rational reason, given the technical qualities of each of these companies in purifying these antibodies, that there should be a safety problem. So they should be, should be able to go rapidly into a trial of therapy in patients who are infected with the virus. And just as with remdesivir, I presume that they will go into patients who are early in the course of the infection to try to shut the virus down and block the replication of the virus and facilitate the recovery of the patients. It is our firm prediction that assuming the antibodies are safe, which they should be, that the block of the virus by the monoclonals will be greater than it is with remdesivir. And I won't go into why, but we, we strongly believe that. So if we assume that the monoclonals are safe and they block replication in patients, they also can be used for prevention because they have a long dwell time in the blood. And we don't know exactly what their dwell time in the blood will be at what dose, but it is possible that they would last after a single injection uh, a month at a time. So they could be used to not only treat sick patients, but protect the healthcare worker community that is working so hard to treat patients who are at tremendous risk despite the use of protective equipment of getting infected. And now the, so that's going well, that kind of clinical data could 
easily be available by early fall. Um, certainly in the third quarter of this year, if everything goes well. Now comes the audacious part of what I'm going to propose. propose. If the monoclonal antibodies work, as we think they will, they will have proven that an antibody can neutralize and block the infection of this virus. That's what a vaccine does. A vaccine induces such antibodies, a diverse group of antibodies, in humans when the vaccine is injected into people. So these vaccine trials that are going on and, and going very quickly, the Pfizer German company one, the Moderna one, the Oxford one, all of which have been in the news, are going as fast as they can, as they can go. Those companies will be able to determine very quickly whether their vaccines are inducing in humans the production of a collection of antibodies that neutralize the virus and block its replication before someone's infected. So if the monoclonals work, the presence of good amounts of the, of the collection of antibodies that humans make against any of these vaccines, that is presumptive evidence without doing a formal trial to test people and some people are not injected and some people are injected with the vaccine, which would take a long time. That is presumptive evidence that a vaccine will work. And it is, it is our contention, and it's certainly my contention, that if the monoclonal antibodies work and the vaccines induce good levels and good quality antibodies in humans, that a vaccine should be, whatever vaccine does that, should be approved rapidly for use again, first in high-risk healthcare workers, and then after a couple of months of that, uh, those vaccinations, assuming everything goes well and there are no safety issues for the general public. Now, if everything went perfectly, and of course, that's hard to predict, a vaccine could be approved for general use by the end of this calendar year. That sounds perhaps uh, audacious, and it is slightly audacious, but it is not an absurd idea. There are steps to march through in this scenario that will ensure safety of such a plan, which could be halted or aborted at several steps of the, of the plan. But um, we urge you <laughs> to urge the regulators of vaccines development to strongly consider this plan and to monitor it carefully for safety along the way. Because one thing we certainly don't want to do is harm anyone with this plan. But if it works, we will have turned around this problem in record time and really facilitate the 
health recovery of the public, and as a consequence of that, the ability to safely reopen the economy. So I will stop and turn it over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Liu, who is a real expert in the testing that's going on. Thank you, Dr. Skolnick. Uh, Dr. Liu, in the essence of trying to preserve as much time for Q&A, yeah. if hit the high points on testing, and then I think it would be really helpful for Steve. Steve, if you can kind of uh, cover the testing issue from a public policy point of view. Yeah, I'll be very brief. Uh, so Ed uh, very nicely summarized the first three of our four proposals. The fourth one is on how to reopen our schools and workplaces while minimizing the risk of new outbreaks and new loss of life. Uh, and uh, as I go through these points, Romnick and I and others will be happy to answer any questions you might have about the scientific basis underlying each of these recommendations. Uh, in the interest of time, maybe I'll just uh, paint a picture of three things that will be true if our recommendations in how to reopen our schools and workplaces are all implemented. Uh, so you'll wake up and every morning before you go to work or to school, you'll certify on a phone app or on a web browser that you have or do not have any of the 14 to 15 COVID-19 symptoms, which I've put up in my background here, each of which comes with a quantitative risk score. If your responses in total do not exceed the acceptable risk score that is set each day or each week by local, state, or federal policymakers, then you are cleared to go to work or to school and you get a QR code on your phone or your browser that you can print out. Uh, second, all people must wear a surgical mask, uh, not a cloth mask, uh, to go to work or to school. Uh, surgical masks have been shown to be substantially more efficacious than uh, cloth masks uh, at protecting people. And we don't think they are currently in very scarce supply in the world, although uh, there may be scarcities uh, in certain localities. Now, N95 respirators, those masks that fit tightly around your nose and your mouth, uh, those can be even more effective than surgical masks, uh, but only if worn continuously and if properly fitted. And we think that the resulting discomfort and lack of proper use, backed up by some studies, some real-life studies, make these N95 masks in practice no more protective than surgical masks for the general population. Plus, they're a lot harder to come by, and we, uh, of course, need to prioritize healthcare workers for wearing these masks. A third, at the end of the day, uh, virus testing is given to everybody who goes to school or to work. And ideally, we would eventually be able to do this kind of virus testing multiple times a week. Now, by virus testing, we mean PCR testing for the presence of the virus in an infected individual. Another kind of test you've no doubt heard a lot about, antibody or serological testing, is a very popular topic now. But to be clear, there's a big difference between these two types of tests. Virus testing tells you if a person has the virus and might be infectious to others. Antibody testing tells you if a person has already been exposed to the virus in the past without really commenting on whether or not that person is currently able to pass the infection on to others. We don't envision that antibody tests are currently a general way to get people back to work, simply because it's unlikely, in our opinion, and in the opinion of many scientists, that, that more than, say, 5 or 10% at the most 
of the overall population of the U.S. has been infected? And if I were to guess, I would probably say the real answer is closer to 2 or 3% at this point. So even if you make the somewhat perilous leap between a positive antibody test and a right to return to work or to school, something we don't recommend, we don't envision that even if you made that leap, most companies would be operational as a result of regaining, say, a few percent of their workforce back. Now, in some parts of the U.S. and in certain uh, uh, subpopulations, like in nursing homes, in ships, uh, in prisons, uh, antibody testing may make sense because the fraction of, of people who are in those critical populations and may be exposed can be very high, or the risk factor to those people, as in the case of nursing homes, can be very high as well. So antibody tests are very important for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that they are needed to develop vaccines, they're needed to validate any kind of COVID-19 therapeutic, but we don't think they represent a magic bullet to getting people back to work. Now we recognize that this third recommendation of frequent virus testing for everybody who goes back to work and to school is by far the most difficult to implement of the three parts that I just described. But we also feel strongly that it is an essential part of any plan to reopen our country while reducing the risk of new outbreaks and new deaths. And so we wish to make just four key points about testing. First, Currently, COVID-19 tests, as I think many of you know, can only be prescribed by a doctor or a nurse for symptomatic patients. And they can only be read out by that doctor or nurse. As a result, if you were to magically drop 1 billion PCR tests instantly all over the US, it's not clear that we would benefit because the testing capacity of the US healthcare system lacks enough doctors and nurses to be able to prescribe and follow up each test. And I think many of you may have seen recent articles making this point that the testing facilities are saying, hey, we have the capacity to do a lot more testing, but we're not getting the prescriptions for these tests. That's the major bottleneck. So the U.S. and states need to remove the requirement that a doctor or nurse can only request uh, and read out a test. We think that getting a test for this virus should become the same kind of category as getting a flu shot. And it should be able to be done at drugstores and at point of care facilities across the US. Second point, we know that states are reopening as of now. As of a few days ago, a few more days, there'll be more states open. Therefore, we think the short-term plan for getting testing up and running as best as possible is to use existing nasal or throat swab collection and PCR tests run on machines scaled up as quickly as possible. But a third key point is that we think in the long term, one of the few ways that the testing will really scale to large populations is if we use virus testing from saliva samples instead of requiring the somewhat specialized collection of putting a giant Q-tip up your nose uh, or scraping the back of your throat. Uh, saliva tests can be self-collected and there are good uh, studies now published that suggest that a saliva test can be just as reliable, if not maybe more reliable, than one of those swabs that has to be administered by a more specialized, trained individual. So we think long-term, it's important that those testing apparatuses, machines, procedures that are currently being set up for testing, keep in mind that they need to be compatible with saliva samples 
in order to have the greatest benefit long-term. And then finally, and, and maybe most important for testing, we recommend that some kind of empowered science-driven committee, heavily supported by the federal government, be organizing the national testing effort, and of course, coordinating with states what happens to a positive test result, which should initiate quarantine and tracing of contacts. Uh, this is really, this coordination is incredibly important. It's important for the vaccine effort that Ed described. It's also important for the testing effort because we need to minimize counterproductive actions such as uh, states and the federal governments competing with each other for some of the same resources. And just as in the case of vaccines, where there are currently about 90 individual efforts racing to develop a vaccine, with states, with 50 states all scrambling to ramp up testing, we think this kind of coordination is more important than ever. So in the interest of time, I'll just leave it there, and we're happy to, to take questions, and I think we've already gotten quite a few. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Lee. Steve? Great. Uh, that, that was a great summary of the testing. You know, when, when you step back on the testing in terms of how it fits into this uh, plan of areas to reduce the R0 factor. I think all of you know the R0 factor is how fast this virus spreads, and testing and tracing will play a very important role in that. Uh, when you look at every way you can stop the virus spreading, unfortunately, testing is the most difficult in terms of cost, capacity, and the ability to put systems in to do that. So, so it's not going to be a short-term solution for the problem. We're going to have to implement a lot of other short-term solutions, like wearing masks, and, uh, and doing, uh, doing self-checks at home, uh, checking temperatures and things at the office. Because when you step back right now, as, as, as uh, Dr. Liu was saying, um, you have capacity right now in the U.S. of a million tests per month. And in a perfect world, you want to be able to test every American you know, five times a week. That's a billion five tests. A million tests a month, it would take uh, 365 months to test all Americans. So uh, I don't think people realize the magnitude of the testing capacity challenge. They're talking, they, they, the, the glass half full is they, they've ramped it up from zero to a million a month in about four months, which is incredible. Uh, but the availability of tests is gonna take quite a long time to ramp that many up and, and put up that many centers and have that many machines. Um, I, I think you're talking uh, at, at best case, you know, many, many months, um, and, and, and more like you know, a year or two to ramp that kind of capacity up. So the public policy issue come, comes up, up is when you have tests that are gonna be limited, where do you spend those precious you know, tests? Uh, and, and we're working on that with the Mass High Tech Council. Obviously, uh, first responders and medical personnel, you know, that's a priority for testing. Um, people who are exposed more to priority for testing. Also a big area that we talk with the science group about is, uh, is, is doing random testing so we can understand where this virus is, how many people have actually gotten it. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the scientists can tell you there's been many studies out there. So far, uh, many of them have not been accurate. So we, don't, we do not know uh, if the United States has, has a 2% penetration of the virus, a 6%, a 5%, or a 20% penetration of the virus yet because uh, we don't have reliable, um, you know, broad-based testing even on a sample basis. So secondly, uh, and the testing is powerful. Uh, the, the data we have shows that uh, with other methods, if, if, you can, if you can reduce the R0 factor by, uh, by, by about 35%, testing can almost double that reduction of the R0 factor. So if you had effective ubiquitous testing and tracing, uh, the perfect nirvana would be to have at-home tests for, for every American 
that they could do five times a week, uh, that would that would that would solve the testing problem. You'd wake up in the morning, brush your teeth, take a test. We're not going to have that, and that's a lot of logistics, and that's that's a billion five you know, at home tests which haven't been developed yet. So we got to back that up to kind of what we can do, and and moving that level from a million to two two million, and then figure out how to spend it. Secondly, uh, tracing is really important to get that R not down, and so you've got to couple the testing with with tracing of, of people and systems so that a cell phone will tell you who you walked by, and when you test positive, a message will go out automatically to anybody who you were near, and then they can get tested. So, so our view on testing is it's gonna be an important step. It's certainly not a short-term solution, you know, given the capacity and given the lead, the lead times, America's gonna to have to get out ahead of this and figure out how to build many central centers per state. We estimate Massachusetts, for example, would need just to get 100,000 tests a, a, a week out, We'll have to put up seven centers, uh, you know, purchase several machines, put them in laboratories, and get going to that. And the lead time to do that is uh, is 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 about six weeks. So even if we wanted to do that today, it wouldn't happen until six weeks from now. If you multiply that on a national scale, it takes even longer. So so those are going to be the public policy issues on testing: how many, how fast, who gets them, and what they use them for. And we're sorting through all those issues right now. Thanks, Steve. Um... I've never seen this before, but to start Q&A, for those of you who have been in the chat room queuing up your questions, the scientists have been responding and at answering questions. So Liz, you're going to have to help me sort through whose questions have been answered. Uh, first up, I have a question from Bob Zeidman, and then following Bob would be uh, David Roscoe. Hi, thanks. This is Bob. Um, yeah, I have some concerns, uh, pretty strong concerns that hopefully you can address. Uh, so some of us on the call do have a science background, and uh, I think most of us, if not all of us, have a business background. And we've been spending the last three weeks talking to some of the leading uh, virologists and epidemiologists in the country about these issues. And what surprises me, first of all, is that you've given a fixed time plan for your uh, vaccine, uh, saying that it, can, it will be done by the fall. So as a scientist, I know that it's never possible to predict exactly when your research will come to fruition, ever. Um, so I'm surprised that you give a, a fixed time plan for that. But what concerns me more, and I hope you can address this, is you're talking about cutting out the testing of the vaccines and treatments because you know that certain, uh, certain processes, certain uh, things, monoclonal antibodies, will not be dangerous enough that you know, we can just start injecting them into humans, as I understand. And the serious, the potential serious side effects uh, are, are unknown. And I think as business people, we all know that that will be huge liabilities for the pharmaceutical companies if any, even a tiny percentage of people are seriously affected. So how, how can you address, how do you have a fixed time plan and how do you, uh, are, are you so confident in the potential treatments of vaccines that you can cut out uh, I understand speeding up the trials, but to cut out certain trials altogether doesn't make sense to me. Well, I guess uh, since I proposed the plan, I will try to answer your question. First of all, monoclonal antibodies, well purified by the companies that are developing them, who have tremendous experience and do lots of animal safety testing and examining the antibodies for impurities, they are incredibly safe when used in humans. There is an enormous experience of the use of monoclonal antibodies to treat various human diseases over the last 20 years. So the risk of uh, 
injecting monoclonal antibodies into uh, humans after doing the appropriate animal safety testing is really extremely low. The first tests would be done in some number of normal volunteers just to ensure that the uh, predicted safety is actually safe. And then you would go directly into patients with the disease at early stages of the infection, exactly the way the newer remdesivir trials are being done to block the virus from, from replicating. There is nothing inherently unsafe about that. In the um, vaccine trial proposal that I put forward, the, the uh, clear connection between the fact that, the mono, that monoclonal antibodies will have been shown in this plan to neutralize the virus, as they have been shown in uh, a monkey experiment that, that has been done, that neutralize the virus, all you're doing in humans is then uh, injecting the relevant antigens that induce the antibodies in humans that will be the, the equivalent of the monoclonal antibody. The antigens and the methodologies that are going to be used and are being used by the leading companies um, in this field are inherently safe technologies. The technologies themselves are not unsafe for humans. And um, as long as the good titers of neutralizing antibodies are made, I think that there is minimal risk in doing this. And I just don't think that people who have, uh, very frankly, I think the people that you have talked to have just not thought it through. Hey, David. Sure. Yep. I, maybe I'll just uh, add because there's a, a two-part question there. Uh, you know, in our report, we report a, a more standard, although still very accelerated, timeline for vaccines of March 2021. Uh, I think what Ed uh, uh, described with his, as promised, uh, provocative, ultra, what is the fastest possible case scenario that he outlined uh, in his vaccine uh, uh, notes. Imagine what is if you if you really needed to make a vaccine in 2020. What's one of the only ways you can do it? Uh, so I think that's the answer to the first part of the question about how in the world could it be that fast? It's not saying that we will definitely have a vaccine by that time. I think Ed is saying if you really want a vaccine before the end of 2020, you're going to have to take steps that that involve skipping some of what we would normally do on an already accelerated timescale that would otherwise put vaccine production into 2021. Dave Roscoe. Yes, um, I, I, I was. Uh, first of all, I want to thank both of you for an outstandingly clear um, description of of the strategy you've outlined. I was struck by um, this concept of trying to get um, some cooperation between uh, the big pharma companies, um, and wondered if this is to get remdesivir into the liquid form. I just wondered if the Defense Production Act is something that the federal government might use to actually put pressure on both companies to come to the table and find a way to end up partnering or cooperating. Thank you. Well, I, I, I will answer that and then turn, turn a, 
the time over to someone who knows a little bit more about that than I do. But but I think that uh, less onerous process could be first tried to facilitate the interactions and, and, and accelerate the interactions between the relevant companies to make the, to make the broadest applicable inhalation form. If it were me and you're asking me the question, would I invoke the Defense Act if I couldn't do it by uh, cajoling? I would do it because rendisivir has now been shown to work in humans. And the faster we can get to an easier and better delivery system for more drug in the lung, the better we're going to have a treatment for the people who really get sick. I think we ought to put you in charge then. So maybe I can add to Ed's comment. I mean, the remdesivir sort of fast tracking, having number of doses and formulations that can get to patients quicker is going to apply to the same monoclonal antibodies and the vaccines. Because when you make monoclonal antibodies, initially you're not going to make enough. And you're going to have to have a system of collaboration between different manufacturers who have the knowledge base to make the number of doses. And I think this is also going to be true for vaccines. So having test runs with remdesivir is probably the place to start. Yeah, that's also part of the question, the answer to a question I saw fly by in the, in the group chat. Uh, somebody asks, if testing is going to take so long to ramp up, why do we even need testing now? Why don't we just focus entirely on drugs and vaccines? Uh, you, you need the testing, the virus testing, uh, for many reasons, uh, not the least of which is you can't give somebody a precious dose of a drug or a vaccine uh, if you uh, know or don't know that they are infected with this virus. So certainly, because we anticipate that there are going to be shortages initially of either small molecule antivirals like remdesivir or vaccines, uh, testing is going to be the first requirement uh, to make sure that you actually have the virus before you get a dose, among many other reasons. Let me just add something that, uh, in response to the question I was just asked a minute ago before Romnick, before Romnick spoke, um, when I was at Merck and we led the effort, a national effort to make HIV a manageable disease, we organized a 12-company intercompany collaboration to facilitate getting the right combinations of drugs into people much faster than otherwise would have happened. And we cut probably three to five years off the timetable for doing that. And uh, a dozen pharmaceutical companies in this country were willing to cooperate uh, in doing this. And it is my opinion that they should be willing to cooperate to do it for this pandemic. Okay, Maxine Clark. Um, I have a question because I, I recently heard one of our speakers talk about the relatively low penetration of flu shots, meaning that many people can take them. Everyone can have one, but, but a smaller percentage of the population gets it than we would hope. So this fall, when people start to get their flu shots, would you recommend um, that we put a campaign together to get more people to get their flu shot? And then do we expect that there might be any conflict between the flu shot and any other vaccine for this uh, coronavirus, um, or how will we, we test for that so that we'll know that? And then the, the last part is equity. How do we make sure that the tests are not just for the haves, 
but also for the have nots and that we get it as wide because they seem to be much more impacted than uh, the average uh, affluent person. And then also what would be the impact on seniors who are supposed to, you know, not necessarily are much more likely to uh, be affected just by age, let alone by a health condition. Yeah. So the, the first question, I think absolutely, this is a golden opportunity. In fact, we should always mount a flu shot campaign, which, you know, I hear every year, it's sort of on the air a little bit. Uh, this is a great opportunity to say, if you don't want symptoms like what you've seen in the news, you should get yourself a flu shot, you should hopefully get yourself a COVID-19 vaccine shot. Uh, so I think that is absolutely the case. Um, your, your second question again was, well, they conflict with each other, you know. How uh, yeah, that remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, that remains to be seen. There are many vaccines that can be given simultaneously because they've been shown in animal and human studies to not have interfering problems. Uh, Ron, I don't know if you have any more comments on it. Yeah. We likely to take your flu shot first, get that done and out of the way before the yeah, next. So the, yeah, I think the preferred approach would be to get the flu shot first. The other important aspect is that if you get the flu shot and then you get flu-like symptoms that are probably related to COVID-19, then you use the same Walgreens to get your COVID-19 test done. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of build in a structure for everybody in the US to get access to um, testing as well as vaccination. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the last part of your question about how to get the flu shot and testing and to the broader population, um, and I think one of the uh, concepts that David knew briefly alluded to is that as we are ramping up testing, one needs to have pilot projects that are going to redistribute the testing capacity so that you could find communities where the outbreak is going to be a little bit higher than places where you know it's going likely to be a lot lower. And so the determinants are going to be population density. So there's a Example in Massachusetts, in a place called Chelsea, where there are 40,000 people who live in two square miles. So that's a community that you should not wait for the virus to show up. You should be testing before patients have symptoms. Just one comment additionally, Ramnik, on, in, in terms of the uh, giving the two vaccines and the safety question that was raised earlier. Uh, for all of you who uh, don't know this, the current flu vaccine is a preparation of virus itself that's grown in eggs and purified and given to people. And as many of you know who have had the flu vaccine, some years you get a more of a sore arm than you and perhaps some side effects than you get in other years. The kind of vaccine that is being developed for coronavirus will be a highly purified vaccine that in terms of the kinds of side effects associated with flu vaccines should occur at an extremely low rate. It should be much better tolerated than the flu vaccine. Okay, next question is from uh, Raymond Toulage, followed by Larry Hirschfeld. Difficult for me to understand that perhaps we live in two different countries. We have a million patients as a group, Somos, in New York City. Most of them immigrants, very, by far more dense than is in a isosceles triangle, probably 20,000 lives has been lost. And more and more than that, people being very sick still 
you see 300 will come from that area because most of the people that they can't hospital it is because the EMS has been told to put inside and notify to die in the emergency room. This is why that lady killed herself. She had to sign so many of these documents. But what I mentioned this is when you had to get the state, the federal government is saying, federal government, that after three days without fever, you go back to work. And that's the standard for our employees, our healthcare workers. And you have an available IgG, IgM test. You're not going to use it on top of that? What's wrong with that? What, another layer of protection, good or bad, 90, 85, 95%. I keep saying first, first, I had no relationship with any drug corporation or any institution. I had no uh, conflict. All I say because what I'm seeing in my community, and this is yeah. why when somebody says six feet apart and the pyramids, it's hard here to go to isolation, totally wrong. It does not work in inner city. You have to start from the beginning, track and tracing. Otherwise, I, as a doctor, was a terrorist. We, by the beginning of the pandemic, we were diagnosing 70% of the twins positive. I would send them back to the building with 12 people living in one bedroom. At that time, nobody was saying they need to be isolated because we looked at that pyramid. It was no time for that. It's wrong. We still could prevent more deaths. I don't know about treatment. That's the best thing that could happen. But right now, the situation, when I hear Dr. Fauci, with all the respect that I have for him, saying that the poor people should put in, put in a hotel and test every four days, say, where is he? Why is he come to New York City to see what's going on? And nobody's been tested. And at the same time, there's no isolation. How are you going to isolate? And elite people who got plenty of money, when here people are dying and infecting each other. Raymond, let's see if we can get that addressed. I, I don't think our group, this is Dr. I, I think that what you've raised is a poignant and extremely difficult issue. And I have enormous sympathy for the problem that you face, enormous sympathy. I, I grew up in a crowded inner city environment like the one you described. But our group is a group of scientists. We do not have the influence over the, what I would call the political system in this country to help you solve the problem that you're articulating. Dr. Liu is not uh advocating the double negative here he is not saying not to use the antibody testing to be able to determine who is already been infected and is likely uh therefore not to uh transmit the the virus once they've cleared it but i don't think that we have a simple scientific solution to solve the uh, societal issue that you're raising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks, Ed. Ramon, your, your story really uh, makes real for many people exactly why this uh, virus is not business as usual. It's not like the flu. Um, 
and uh, we we detail in in our report uh, cases where we think antibody testing will be especially useful, including cases like healthcare workers, detention centers, uh, nursing homes, where it can be very valuable, especially if the risk of exposure or if the risk of death once exposed is unusually high. So I agree with uh, everything you said and, and share Ed's comments about uh, how much sympathy I have for the people who have experienced what you've described. So thank Ramon, you. Uh, in the Massachusetts plan we're discussing, uh, there's a specific uh, issue on you know, where do you use tests, as I mentioned, and a great use of tests will be to go into the inner cities, those situations where families are living together, and identify, as I said, hotspots. That's a hotspot in Chelsea here in Massachusetts. And then we're talking about ways to, uh, can we get hotel rooms to isolate the, the uh, people? Um, how, do you, how do you change those conditions? Because uh, a lot of times when these families are living together, you have, you have people working in service industries or healthcare, and then they bring the virus back, and then you're in, in a small place with 12 people, as you said. Uh, and that's how you create these hotspots and then spread the virus further. So it's in everybody's interest. Uh, and, and certainly it, it, it's, it's heart crushing to have that situation. So uh, I think any plan we have is, is going to uh, say, say that's a high priority. The hotspots are high priority for testing. Okay, last question will come from uh, Larry Hirschfield. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for putting this together. It's been fascinating. Um, with respect to the PCR tests, I guess I'm, I'd like to understand why, if, it, if the virus should be in saliva, why they're still using the ultra-long nasal swabs and why those tests seem to have such high negatives. I've been told concentration's too low or the yeah. virus is not always present or yeah. the test itself breaks down the RNA or right. what's the problem? <clears throat> yeah, that, those are great, important questions. Uh, saliva testing is newer. It's not as, it certainly hasn't been used nearly as widely. Uh, it is starting to become uh, a standard for some testing centers, but uh, there are still far more uh, nasal and throat swab tests that have been done. The false positive rate for virus testing, for PCR testing, is extremely low. Uh, the, the false negative rate is high, but it's high primarily because of sample collection, preparation, survivability of, of the of the RNA uh, and how the sample is handled, not because once it enters the PCR tube, uh, the RNA, if, if present, fails to amplify. So it's really on the front end uh, that it seems that most of the false negatives appear. Uh, uh, so anyhow, hopefully that, that answers your question. You know, the antibody tests are quite different. Uh, they have fairly high false negative and disturbingly high false positive uh, rates as well. And that simply comes from the fact that if you're detecting basically the same 30,000 letters of RNA in a virus test that each of us would be exposed to, you're detecting one thing. An antibody test it detects your body's antibody response to the virus, which by definition uh, draws on a vast immunological diversity. And your antibodies may be a little different than my antibodies or Ed's antibodies or anybody else's. That's why antibody if, if tests I may, If I may add just a word here to... If I may add just a word to what David said and, and uh, the saliva versus uh, nasal swab issue. This, these are early days, there's a small number of papers, but I, I would say our, our, our indication is that is our, our betting as a group, or maybe I should say my betting, is that the variability from the front end will be less 
from the saliva than it will be from the nasal swab, which sort of makes sense from a collection standpoint. You can just sort of imagine. That's not, that's not a done deal, but I think that's likely to be the case. The inherent, I just add one comment. I, I did a little homework today, David, to keep up with you on testing. Um, I think that under the best of circumstances, test itself can detect as low as 10 copies of the, of the virus, yeah. which is extremely sensitive. Yeah, PCR so is awesome. Is really awesome. And so the collection comments that you've made and, and, and Michael has made, I think, are exactly right. Could I make could I make one additional sure comment, please? Which I think we had, we had discussed very briefly when we had a when we had a little prep prep for this, and it didn't it didn't come up unfortunately. I, I think what what you you, you collection assistance can consider doing is is perhaps helping with this testing issue through through congressional funding. In other words, this is this is uh, an unbelievable major expense for the states. The states have taken on most of this burden. And, and I think how testing gets, gets funded is, 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 a major, is going to be a major preoccupation. And I think that's one, one role that some of you, some of you might consider playing. Um, if, if I might add here, uh, first of all, thank you for a wonderful uh, presentation. Um, I think uh, the sponsor of this uh, afternoon's talk uh, and uh, you all are natural allies here. Um, we should uh, talk uh, after this about uh, how we get you exposed to our congressional group. We have 50 loud voices in uh, the House and a growing number of loud voices in the Senate uh, who are anxious to engage on uh, these issues. Uh, they can be uh, your amplifier, uh, and I, I think it would be very worthwhile uh, to find a time and a place for you to provide a similar uh, presentation uh, to that group of congressional leaders. Uh, I'm sure they'd be anxious to take elements of your plan and incorporate it in their get back to work plan. Uh, and and uh, uh, they can both be a, uh, a megaphone and also a tool through which legislation can be executed uh, to make uh, some of this uh, potentially reality. But thank you all for, for being a part of today's session. It was terrific. You just heard the scientists to stop COVID-19 discuss both the promise and the pitfalls of various treatment options. Remdesivir, originally developed to treat Ebola, has been used with some success to combat COVID-19, but requires five to 10 days of IV administration, making it inaccessible for those at home. That's partly why these scientists see more promise in monoclonal antibodies, which use the body's own immune system to block the virus's ability to regenerate in the body. Finally, of course, there is the vaccine route, and these scientists see potential for a vaccine to be available by the end of the year. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. 